Hello, everybody. Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to The Daily Evolver. Today, I'm sharing a conversation that I had with my dear friend and integral colleague of many years. We started back in the Integral Institute days 10-plus years ago. And this is Diane Musho Hamilton, who I know many of you are quite familiar with. Diane is a Zen teacher in the White Plum lineage, as well as a professional mediator. She is at the forefront of one of the most significant spiritual emergence, I think, in our culture, and that is the realization of the power of everyday relationships, the give and takes we have with other people, uh, that this itself is a serious means of spiritual practice. For many spiritual practitioners, it just no longer feels like enough to merely follow an individual meditation practice, as valuable as that is. But we want to also apply our new, enlarged, more flexible view, our bigger consciousness, uh, to all of the circumstances of our life, and most definitely to the relationships that we have with the people we love and the people we hate. <laughs> Uh, But yeah, it's true. I mean, we want to bring awareness to all of it. And that's what Diane is so good at. Diane explores this topic fully in her new book called The Zen of You and Me, A Guide to Getting Along with Just About Anyone. And it's a beautiful book. Uh, Diane is a beautiful writer and transmitter. I mean, I feel differently having read it. So I really recommend it. And uh, also appreciate that you're here to listen to our conversation about the big themes of the book and, <laughs> and of course, how they relate to Trump. I'm sorry. But, you know, when we're talking about getting along with other people, it's just up in our American culture that we are seeing polarity um, really um, taking shape throughout the culture and throughout our politics. And, you know, in this milieu, real spiritually grounded teachings, uh, relational practices just couldn't be more important. And so I'm really happy to offer this teaching from a great teacher, Diane Mouchot-Hamilton. I start the conversation by asking her about how she grounds her teaching in this enduring cosmic polarity between difference and sameness, and how it resonates from the Big Bang to, you know, how we're dealing with our kids and our in-laws and our political opponents. Okay, so here's Diane. Well, Zen training is, you know, as we know, all spiritual work is really about opening our identity so that we become the same as all things. So you might say that the unitive experience is the, the ultimate insameness. But, you know, human beings are also highly organized to seek sameness in each other. So culture really, in a certain way, is a boundary around a, a group of 
of shared values, you know, shared conventions, shared history, shared ways of dressing, shared ways of speaking. So again, there's this big sameness in culture. Then there's sameness in our families, sameness. You know, we seek deep sameness with our lovers, and there's so much pleasure in that quality of sameness. But what we understand about how the universe evolves is that it's actually through the kind of the oscillation between sameness and difference. And, you know, our our good friend and teacher Ken Wilber talks about how, you know, quarks become atoms and then atoms hang out and then coalesce and then they become molecules. So so out of the sameness springs something different. And it's 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 this interplay between sameness and difference that actually evolves the universe. We wouldn't evolve if there wasn't something new mm-hmm. happening. It wasn't no. a whitehead that said called it the creative advance into novelty. That creative advance is always born of a difference. That's what creativity is. Something new emerges that wasn't there before. Right. Our brain evolves the same way. We create new neural pathways, and then over time they're integrated, and the brain evolves. So I've been just contemplating that idea. Yeah, and I love how you sort of bring us through even individual development. You talk about you and your little eight-year-old friend and how yeah. the same you were. And I yeah. think of that myself. I think of my myself and my friends from elementary school and my cousins, and we were all the same. We mm-hmm. were. Yeah, totally. uh, And then we weren't. And, and now weren't. we're not uh, mm-hmm. necessarily. I mean, we're as different as people can be. Mm-hmm. And that's just part of that growth. Mm-hmm. And um, and we see that even in our mature relationships with people. Yeah, that's right. So family is a great example of it because we have this really early sense of just complete kind of identification. And then we move through differentiation processes. We become more individual. I think it was, was Eric Erickson, the developmental psychologist, who first started talking about the importance of individuation. So healthy a healthy move to maturity means to individuate from the sameness of your family. If you continue along a healthy developmental line, then you integrate and you're both the same as your family. I mean, genetically, you're the same. You may have a lot of early history that's the same. And yet there are these, these wild differences. And it's the family that can include the sameness and the difference that's able to endure. If you're stuck in the sameness, it's just conformity and enmeshment. And if you're only able to relate with your differences, then you're basically alienated. So it's really important, and Ken calls this the miracle of we, that it's a paradox, that you and I are the same in our love of integral theory and developmental theory and growth, and we love to hang out together, and we're interested in politics, and but we're different in that, you know, you're in a male body, I'm in a, a woman's body, we have different histories, we have different preferences for how we work in relationship and and yet the fact that you and I can be both the same and there's space for our differences we can tolerate the tension of our differences is what us, allows us to have an interesting and creative relationship so that's actually becomes a bit of a practice i mean if mm-hmm. i if i feel like i'm in a relationship where i have a lot of harmony mm-hmm. uh, there's maybe a natural impulse that I want to start looking around for some differences or I want to start expressing myself a little more. Yeah, it's very natural. Yeah. And that just seems to be the oscillation that we probably want to be aware of Mm -hmm. and, and, and participate in. Right. Yes. If we, if what we're interested in is an, as an invigorating and creative relationship, then, 
Definitely. Now, some relationships are based much more on conformity. There's very little tolerance for difference. If any difference starts to emerge, it gets driven out of the system. Highly conventional religious systems are this way. You know, you're not really allowed free thought. If you listen to lots of people and why it is they left the tradition of their upbringing, it was because they weren't allowed to think any differently. They weren't mm -hmm. allowed to ask questions that created a disturbance. But, you know, that's just how evolution works. So anything that attempts to, I mean, fundamentalism is like that. It's an attempt to, to drive out difference so that something can be solidified. But that isn't really how the world works. The universe works by giving us opportunities to, to integrate and work with the tension of difference. And difference is exciting. It's enlivening. Sameness, of course, is deeply comforting. Yeah. Um, but sameness, sameness turns into stagnation. Too much difference, there's too much disruption in the system. You can't, it's not that sweet spot of, of, you know, like if you think about a soup, for instance, you have a really coherent base. And then there are certain spices and flavors that kind of sing out individually and, and create a melody. And so it, 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 it has to do with coherence and differentiation. Coherence, differentiation, same is true in music, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we could even see this in the development of uh, human culture. Mm -hmm. I mean, we look at the stages of development. You talk about conformity and, and religious fundamentalism and so forth. Mm -hmm. That is the nature of the amber traditionalist stage of development. Absolutely. And, and it serves a very powerful function. Of, it, it gives stability and groundedness and predictability, all things that humans are in need of at a certain level of development, for sure. And not a lot of room for self-expression. No, that's not the point at that stage of development. Yeah, until it is, until modernity comes along and says, hey, wait a minute, we're all individuals and we get to express our individuality and our creativity, and uh, right. and that's a whole new ballgame, and that, that sort of swings the to the pole of individuation. Right, until people, lots of friends of ours, understand that then they start to feel a little bit isolated and they don't know who it is that's going to come to their weddings or their funerals or like that. There's also with that, that self-authoring step, that individualized expression, there's a loss of the stability and the reference points of community. Yeah. And sometimes people then start seeking it again. Yeah. But yeah. what happens is they look for it in more conformist settings, and then they find they can't can't thrive there. So they have to find cultures that that will allow for individual expression, but still have some base of basic belief system they're working with or practice, say in Zen training, yeah. looking for for a spiritual practice in common or a value set or a political engagement. So you look for something where you can still really engage the community, but there's room for self expression. Yeah. Those are harder to find. And this would be a move out of orange modernity into green post-modernity, where we once again emphasize community, but we all get to fly our own freak flag. And we emphasize tolerance and diversity, and everyone's included, no matter your race or identity or gender or whatever, provided you think green. That is, you value tolerance and diversity. And if you don't, you're out, because green is actually quite intolerant of intolerance. But it is great progress, and a move to integrate that oscillation between sameness and difference, 
phrase. Yeah, it kind of it kind of goes back and forth between this autonomy and communion, which I guess is another way to talk about sameness and difference is autonomy and communion. Because when we when we hit pluralism, we're really interested in bringing, you know, creating even a larger embrace of that which was left out. So the impulse towards sameness, we want to bring in marginalized voices and marginalized experiences and the marginalized parts of ourselves. And that that's a gesture towards sameness. So paradoxically, pluralistic culture is not very tolerant of difference. It yeah. brings it in, but it's not tolerant of it. It's very strange. Yeah. yeah. So you work... Uh, very much in the culture as it is. I mean, you're a mediator, so you're out there doing work in corporate America, and you are one of the greatest Zen teachers, I must say, and have a wonderful sangha. And you're so you're you're teaching in that realm too. Um, what are you seeing? What what are people running into that that this helps them with? Well, you know, it depends again on on kind of the cultural set, the the kind of place where I'm working. Um, if I'm working in a corporate environment, a lot of times there's some impulse to want to try to include more of the subjective part of each individual, not to be quite so focused on on just all accomplishing. But it's hard to realize that because sometimes allowing for our emotional states, our subjectivity, our moments of pain or confusion, it's difficult to be at a pitch of accomplishment and allow for that. So in a certain way, you know, if you're working in a corporate culture, let's say you're at Google, for instance, expressing your vulnerability, there might be a way in which that's seen as a good idea for your development, but it's not very practical in terms of the bottom line. So there's a confusion that happens there. I think in pluralistic culture, lots of times there is some, there's an impulse towards all this tolerant tolerance um, and yet power is largely marginalized and seen as bad and no, there shouldn't be any rank and nobody should have hierarchy, but there are natural hierarchies and we do organize around talent and expertise and efficiency. So, so, you know, green cultures can get quite stagnant and Ken's written about this extensively, as you know, mm -hmm. this article on post-truth, he really criticizes the identity politics and the way in which we get really stuck, like, Green is supposed to be such a tolerant level of development, and yet we become like really intolerant. And I think right. a lot of people in green culture are kind of suffering that and not quite knowing how to work with it. We happen to be privileged because we use this kind of evolutionary or developmental framework where the idea that culture is always in the process of growing and changing. And then as a mediator, what I need to do is to help people sort of see where that next step might be and help them move to it. Um, so just the fact that depending on where we are in culture, that our developmental tasks are different, there are different sorts of challenges. And then we talk a lot about politics and right now the extreme, you know, like in lots of places, I mean, I think this is true a lot of times in the Middle East as well, where the extreme voices get the attention. Yeah. So, the, you know, we, we don't have a discourse that's very powerful related to compromise or related to reaching across the aisle or finding the middle way. It's all about kind of sticking to our, our guns and, and to the extent that some people would argue that it's really hurting our democracy. How my, I, I would like my book to contribute to this conversation because I think seeing differences as healthy in the right amount. And if there are too much difference, we need to strive to find more commonality. Yeah. And if there's so much commonality that we're losing our creativity, then we should ruffle each other's feathers more. 
So, you know, that's kind of my simple contribution to that, that big dilemma. I don't know that anybody except the people in our small circles are, he- are hearing this message, but. Yeah. Well, I yeah. wonder about it too. And, you know, clearly the country is becoming more and more polarized. Yeah. And, um, and yet I see that sometimes as sort of a function of growing up. It's like, you know, we talk about how the same we were when we were little kids, and then we find out we're different. And then there's a, a stage of development called called sophomoric, okay. where you're like in the second year of college, and you have learned a lot. You're away from home. Your old traditional beliefs have been challenged, and you just want to become argumentative and opinionated right, yeah. and about the world right. in, in a whole new way. Right. And it's almost like the culture at large has a center of gravity at that stage where everybody's really figuring out who they are and what they believe and what their political philosophy is and what team they're on. Yeah, because everybody can express themselves now through social media. Exactly. It used to be that you didn't have a, you didn't have a forum for your opinion, and now you do. Absolutely. Yeah. And I grew up with people who felt just completely alienated from the media and the political establishment you know, church-going conservative people. And, you know, there really wasn't much of anything in terms of media for people like that. That's not true anymore. Mm-hmm. And so everybody's in the game now. And mm-hmm. there there probably is uh, some fruitful qualities to the friction. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, from an integral perspective, we want to start cultivating this new territory you wrote it in your book so beautifully. You said, at some point, difference is no longer translated as a problem. Rather, it becomes interesting. Mm-hmm. And so I think as integralists, don't we want to create the territory where we can sort of relate to all of these perspectives or both of these poles at the same time in a new way? I mean, I'm trying to sort this out myself. Yeah, I think we all are right now. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, there's no question that, you know, having the capacity to see the truth in any perspective, even if, if it's partial, is part of, you know, the way an integralist would see and frame the world. And then seeing the polarity is, is being filled with creative possibility, um, and then allowing for the emergence to happen through that tension is really important. I think where we get bogged down is when we have the experience that people on the other side don't seem to be quite as willing to allow for that. Now, I don't know if that's true or if that's just a built-in perception. That that, um, But I do think uh, we would say that, you know, different levels of development are able to hold more differing perspectives and privilege those perspectives. And sometimes we're in conversation with people that don't seem to be as able to hold as many perspectives. And that seems to be just true. And what do we do about that? How do we work with that? Um, It's kind of something we have to live out and see. I think where it gets dangerous is when what I see that's dangerous is the, when the hate starts spilling out because hate is kind of infectious as we know. Mm -hmm. And when it breaks out, it's very hard to, to, to rein it in because it's so deep in the evolutionary history and, and our nervous systems get so afraid and then we get into fight or flight and then we all degrade to kind of a, you know, our tribe and our tribe is the place of safety. And so at the same time, there's creative potential. There's also a lot of danger. Mm-hmm. And I think we sense that too. 
So, yeah, so we integral practitioners certainly are not immune to getting all worked up over all kinds of stuff, including politics. So what would you, I mean, what's a practice or, or how do we deal with this? Let's look at politics, you know, so, uh, you know, he who shall not be named, all right, Trump shows up on the screen (laughs) and and all of a sudden we're sort of flooded and, um, and, and, and I do note that you subtitled your new book, A Guide to Getting Along with Just About Anyone. So <laughs> here's, your, just here's, your, here's your challenge. Uh, what yeah. do we do with this? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, for me, I think that I'm, I'm most disturbed by the fact that he's never held public office and that his, uh, he seems to reflect the kind of leadership that comes from, you know, a kind of imperial level of development or, a, you know, yeah, right. development where he sort of functions like a gang boss, you know, in terms of loyalty and revenge and, you know, very simple phrases and that, you know, it's all about being tough and never changing your position and never apologizing. Well, that that's pretty early stage of development. It is. So I attend, you know, I mean, everybody's kind of concerned that he's going to become like a a strong man and take over the democracy. And I'm hoping that the institutions and just the, the basic center of gravity of the intelligence of the American people won't allow for that. But I wonder about it too. I also, yeah. Yeah. I also get concerned. Um, you know, political processes are, are difficult and we just have to engage the big upside of the whole thing. is just that people are more engaged than they've ever been. And they're talking politics and they care about civic discourse and they're interested in the role of the Supreme Court and they're paying attention to the judiciary and they're looking at the legislative process and what executive orders are. So I feel like, you know, the, the big upside is that the system itself is so activated. Yeah. And um, I'm and just learning. hoping, yeah, and learning. I'm just hoping that while he's in office that there isn't the kind of damage that gets done that's irreversible. I mean, I really don't like the you know, the North Korean kind of thing. I don't like particularly what feels like the alienation of our NATO allies, but, you know, maybe, I mean, everybody says he's a disruptor, you know, mm-hmm. disruptor is supposed to be like a good term. So maybe there is something healthy in that, but uh, I don't know. Yeah. What do you think? I'm curious. Well, I, I feel very much the same way. I mean, I think the guy is red and um, at that egocentric stage of development in, in important ways, including moral. And that's a problem. Yeah. I, I do think that he does have a pattern of farming out the details to people who know how to manage a business, for mm-hmm. instance. And it looks like he's doing roughly the same with the government. So he's mm-hmm. sort of the crazy guy at the middle of it all, but mm. the system works around him. And um, this is, you know, an expression of the hope you mentioned a minute ago that the system will contain him. But to me, what's interesting in, in terms of, you know, integral development is mm-hmm. that a lot of Trump supporters aren't red. They're actually mm-hmm. people who feel that the country's been going in the wrong direction and there's things that need to be corrected. Mm-hmm. And they're traditionalists, basically. Right. So right. the problem is that most integralists are, you know, waist deep to neck deep in green as we mm-hmm. sort of, you know, find our way forward. Mm-hmm. And green just 
doesn't like traditionalists. They don't like right. traditional religion, sex mm-hmm. roles, that there's a that sort of naive patriotism. Mm-hmm. Uh, that all feels slightly z- xenophobic, m- mildly mm-hmm. racist, uh, sexist. Mm-hmm. How do we move forward with a true American family where all of the people are included and you and I've talked about this before, and, and you know, I've mentioned that I think if there's one message from this Trump election is that evolution is not going to allow us to move forward without these people. We thought we could. <laughs> we were hoping we'd get away with it. If you just live in the Bay Area, maybe it's possible. <laughs> or Boulder. Yeah, yeah or Boulder. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't look yeah. like it's going to happen. So, no. you know, that's a challenge. That really yeah. is a challenge. Well, and there there are big lessons to be taken from this for for the you know for those of us who are pluralists or that are green have a you know lots of that flavor to our way of seeing the world and you know the Democratic Party. But I think you know one of the things that's important is that we 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 can't just focus on identity politics. We actually right. have to focus on you know economic development and speak the language of tradition. Talk about jobs. Talk about you know, giving people opportunities. Um, and, you know, to the extent that the discourse becomes one related mainly to racial and ethnic identity or to gender, to whatever, we really limit our ability to have a more wide-ranging conversation with yeah. more issues that are really central. Yeah. And um, and I think that's one of the things Ken's been very clear about is that we sort of allowed identity politics to really, yeah. in a certain way, become the discourse itself when it's really one dimension of the discourse and it's important. I mean, racism still needs to be dealt with, and so does sexism and all those things. But how we do it is really important. Yeah. And can we do it in such a way where we actually liberate everybody? Right on. And it's hard. It's not an easy thing to do, but I yeah. think it can be done. And I think some people are very have been very successful at it. Yeah. But there is a kind of backlash against this sort of just, you know, kind of beating up of anybody who expresses their, you know, their ethnocentrism and, and again without intending often without intending but if you're the person who's the object of that racism or that sexism or whatever it happens to be it doesn't you know the naivete doesn't feel acceptable yeah there's no mercy you know there has to be a little more mercy in the system i think yeah yeah i agree and you know and yet i there, there's certainly a whole lot of people for whom that's probably not in the cards anytime soon. And that's so true. we'll just continue the fight. But right. as integralists, we do want to be cutting these new grooves mm-hmm. in the cosmos. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I noticed and loved that you organized a part of your book around this development that we go through from egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric to cosmocentric. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that we can actually practice doing this so that we participate in our own evolution. And mm-hmm. maybe you share a little bit about that. I thought that was some really great stuff. Well, it's been one of the ways that that uh, my work with Ken and the work we did at the Integral Institute, is, it's so influenced my work as a mediator because I, I just simply can't work with people now without kind of looking through a developmental lens and this this is the crudest possible description of development ever, four stages of development. from, but the, but the basic trend is there, the sense that we move from a more limited perspective to a much more expansive and inclusive perspective and, and that our attachments 
to worldviews change and that our values shift and grow and that we include more care, more capacity for complexity, more willingness to deal with the world the more that we grow. I think that's a really, I've been massively influenced by that. But that kind of bright line between ethnocentric and world-centric is really, really important because when we're when we're more ethnocentric in our nature, keeping in mind that development always includes the healthy transcend and inclusion of each level, is that there's a lot of fear when it comes to difference. And when you're firmly established at a world-centric level, you're just more curious. You're just simply, you don't feel the same level of fear in the body when you see people or engage people who look differently than you do. Right. And the fact that at an ethnocentric level of development, the, the boundary of us and them is really strong, and it's really all about defending our borders and keeping the aliens you know, at bay. And when you hit a world-centric level of development, you just see there's just so much more natural ability to include those that are different than you are and yet then when we do include them some of those people we include are still functioning themselves at an ethnocentric level of development and then you get that kind of backfiring of kind of fundamentalist attitudes within what is a world-centric culture so you know the netherlands is dealing with that germany is scandinavia certainly is dealing with that as well and the u.s is just such a a massive experiment of you know just cross-cultural randomness that we're experiencing all kinds of things here but really being aware of that difference and how the boundary around our national identity around our group around our religion just how solid it gets and then how it changes and there's kind of it's like a sea change really yeah in how people see the world and then so we sometimes now talk about like global citizen versus nationalist Mm -hmm. so i may have more in common with people who see the world the way I do in Africa or South America or Europe than I do with people that live across the street from me. And that's, that's peculiar. That's new. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really interesting. And um, I think it's sort of another dimension of this polarity between difference and sameness. It's one of the engines we talk about uh, in terms of evolution, and that is that we differentiate and then we integrate. Right. And so... You know, integral theory is just such an amazing differentiating lens. Isn't it awesome? Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. So mm-hmm. we see it's people incredible. at red. We see people at amber traditionalism. We see people at modernism. We know how they feel and work and what antenna they have and how they process information. Same with postmodernists. And in just seeing that, we could just be more naturally friendly with mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. And I notice in your book you uh, use another uh, one of the great lenses of differentiating, and that is the five Buddha families of Vajrayana Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I know that system too. And uh, and it's you know it, it, it it's another sort of typology like the Enneagram or Myers Briggs. Uh, yeah. But these things are so helpful. I, I know f- for myself with my partner Chuck. He and I, we, we see the world a lot the same. We have a lot of the same kind of responses to things and values and so forth. But the Enneagram, which is the one I'm most familiar with, mm-hmm. uh, I differentiate that he's a six and I'm a five and that there are qualities of a six that naturally annoy a five. <laughs> <laughs> really? And when I see that and then I see them in him, it's like you write the preface of your book it's like the difference becomes 
enlivening instead of uh-huh. annoying, you know? Yeah. Yeah, because I know it's supposed to be there. It's yeah. not like there's some defect. Yeah. Well, in integral theory, we talk about aqual quadrants, levels, lines, states, and types. And one of the things that Ken points out is that when we we work with differences in type, whether it's a masculine, feminine, although some people object to that, but still it's a differentiation and it's useful. It's not ultimate. It's just simply a way of experiencing things that in a certain way, whenever we differentiate, we're the idea is that we're allowed to see something more precisely and more clearly, and by seeing it more clearly, it act- actually leads to more unity. So in the five Buddha families, we see these, you know, five different styles, their style of, you know, like really clear seeing and of the Vajra family, and then the all-accomplishing action of the Karma family and the discriminating of awareness of the Padna family and the spaciousness of the Buddha family and the abundance, you might say, of the Ratna family. And that, you know, that each of us has a kind of center of gravity in one of these energetic styles, which means that I remember when I first started working with the five families, it just really helped me understand my younger sister a little bit. My younger sister is a driven person. She's probably a three on the Enneagram if we're talking types. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very performance-oriented, very ambitious, very achieving, and always in motion. And at the time when I was young and I first started looking at these typologies, I felt critical of her because I kind of wanted her to be more like me. And whereas I saw myself as somehow, we always see ourselves as somehow the better version of things. We're the standard by which all others should be judged. You know, I, I, you know, I was twenty something before I realized that not everybody is a defective version of me. Yeah, exactly. You know that they actually are different. They get to be different. They're supposed to be. They're different. different. That's precisely <laughs> right. You know, so I started to see that. Oh, you know, her genius is is her 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 motion, and yeah. my genius is more my ability to connect. You know, and so I always was, you know, wanting her to connect with me. But then I remember saying to her one day, you know, like, why won't you, like, just relate with me? Like, if we have a conflict, why can't we talk about it? She said, because you're better than me. Why would I want to do that? Did she mean that you were better than, that she thought you were better? Or that she She thought you thought? She was a better communicator. And that so I always have the upper hand. I see. Yes. And I was like, I kind of had to give it to her. Like, well, no wonder she she wants to be with me in a way in which... She can prevail. I'm her older sister, so why does she want to feel one down? Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. So I feel I just feel a lot more. Oh, I don't know if I feel compassionate towards us, but I certainly feel I don't know tender. You might say towards our differences in a way I didn't used to. Yeah, me too. Um, I, I, my voted for Trump. You know. What's that? My brothers who voted for Trump yeah. who are all trained in the military. Yeah. You know, and they just wanted somebody who's tougher. I suppose. And did I tell you that story about the day after the election? Because I was with you and the story about how I texted my brothers and congratulated them. Did I tell you that? No. Or remind me. Well, I was I was being very smug the day before the election. <laughs> and I'll remind you that you invited me to your place and said, we'll get to celebrate our victory. <laughs> I know. The first Same woman thing. president. No, I was so excited. And then, uh, and I was thinking about my brothers and how mad they were going to be. And then I had this fantasy that they'd get over being mad and they'd call me and congratulate me. So the next morning when I was actually <laughs> place and we had suffered this devastating loss, you know, and I was, I was thought about my brothers and I was so mad at them, so mad. And then I just suddenly remembered that little fantasy I had about them calling me and congratulating me. So I texted them, three of them. 
and told them all, you know, thanks. I mean, congratulations on their victory. And they were so gracious oh. in winning. They texted me back and said that they hoped I got a woman president, you know, at another oh. time. Yeah, it was awesome. So I still have a lot of faith that even though we're our worldviews are different, that there's still that kind of generosity of yeah. of joining with someone in their perspective. And I think it does change our relationships. And I think we all need to be practicing it. Yeah. You just do. Yeah. No, I agree. Uh, it, it's, it, at this point, ideally, when I start to feel critical, I want to change that to curious. Yeah. You know. Yes. And that be, just becomes a whole new ball game. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. it's so freeing for you and for everybody else. Absolutely. I mean, I remember that old Ramda saying when he said, I'd rather be free than right. <laughs> Absolutely. I think I, I think that's what I want until I want to be right. <laughs> yeah, I know. Me too. All right, my dear. Well, I see that we're bouncing up against our, our end here. So um, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, just, you know, if you if you have an interest, just go to either the Shambhala website or Amazon and purchase a copy of The Zen of You and Me. I'd love to hear your thoughts and whether you find it a good read. Thanks yeah. a lot for, for reading it, Jeff, and for giving me some feedback. Yeah, I really love to die, and I recommend it highly to anybody who's interested in this topic and who couldn't be. So yeah. go Thanks. buy this book, The Zen yeah. of You and Me by Diane Hamilton. All right, Thank my dear. Jeff. Thanks so much. Yeah. All, All right. right, we'll see you soon. Thanks Bye-bye. again. Bye. Okay, folks. Jeff here. Thanks again for listening. And you can find more of my stuff on dailyevolver.com. And um, yeah, until next time, keep it integral.